0: This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul,
1: and today we're talking about why we sell wine in America the way that we do. Well, you got to put it in a bottle, Rick, or it'd spill, unless you want to try using a goatskin bag. I like goatskins. We should do that.
0: <laughs> but actually, what I'm talking about is why we name wines after the grapes and not uh, something else. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we're talking about something pretty fundamental, except it's different everywhere. We'll explain why Americans name wines after the grapes. Plus, we have a listener question about wine on airplanes, about wine on tap, and about hangovers. Who doesn't nice. Who doesn't have a question about a hangover? I, I have no idea what a hangover is. No, I've never seen one. Well, and we're gonna make fun of wine sobs as usual, especially the ones who say they don't get hangovers. <laughs> <laughs> Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're talking about something very American, which is why we mostly name wines after the grapes.
1: Well, actually, it's after the wine grapes because we don't make wines called Thompson Seedless, for example.
0: That is true. That is true. We do name wines after the fruit.
1: We have raspberry wine. But those are fruit wines. If it just says
0: wine on the label,
1: got to be grapes.
0: Yep. All right. Well, we're getting off track. So let me get get to what brought this up. Okay. It started with a question from a listener, Claudia Angelilo. I think it's how she pronounces her name, or okay. it could be Angelilo. In other words, it is Claudia, a friend of ours now. From She's for the brand manager. Not from, anymore. We not anymore. Claudia was from. a friend and a regular listener, and <laughs> sorry, Claudia. She's a brand manager for Snooth in New York. Mm. And if you don't know, that's a really popular wine website. Yes. It's, yeah. Nice folks there. Influential. Okay. And as they are. And anyway, she wrote us a question. She said, I recently had the opportunity to taste a Meritage for the first time in ages, and it got me thinking about a New World Signature Blends. So much of the New World has hung its hat on grape varieties rather than blends. Can you talk a little bit about how this evolved and about whether or not you see it changing in the future?
1: Yes. Well, how did it evolve? And well, let's will let's, it change? let's get to
0: it. will it change? We're, it's not going to change, but we're going to tell you why. A little Probably bit later. not going to change. That's yeah, right. Yeah. But but how, how did, did it evolve? It? Actually, before we do, let me just define a couple of terms, just so folks know. Meritage okay. is a blend. It's actually a, a proprietary name for folks who join the organization, but it's using the grapes that they use in Bordeaux. Right. And New World really means anywhere not Europe. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's that's of, right. That's a really simple way to describe it. Good. All right,
1: so. So how did this evolve, Paul? Well, let's go back to the ancient Romans, because they named... It's always them, isn't it? You know it often is. Actually, they planted most of the wine regions in Europe, and they had a tendency to name products after the region where they were produced. So no matter what kind of wine came from the Spanish region along the Rio Oja, which is the river, uh, the Oja River, they, they would have called those wines Rioja wines. And that tradition continues today in Europe. Bordeaux, wines from Bordeaux. Now, are wines from Bordeaux different from Burgundy? Yeah, because that's something that's evolved over a couple of thousand years. They know what they can sell. They know what the locals like to drink they know what grows well in their region and so each one of these regions has kind of developed its own style of wine and so the wine is named for the region
0: and that's you know that's actually sort of a key part because these things like as you said you know hundreds to thousands of years of evolution so so people in the regions people in Europe understand this stuff instinctively they know that they've been been growing these those five bordeaux or those those five bordeaux grapes were the grapes that worked best in in the region of bordeaux named after the port of bordeaux which right. is once again right. and um and they what one of the reasons why they chose those five grapes is one they worked well together two they ripened at different times right. so Crop that they insurance. Could, so i mean this is farmers at work over time and if yep. you live in france you know that and it's like it's like San Philly cheesesteak if you take a Philly cheesesteak over to France and say, hey, I got a Philly cheesesteak, they're going to – they're probably going to hit you with a pitchfork because they won't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> right.
1: I'd like to see you do that, right? Yeah, I, well, in fact, I would I would go along with a video camera just to watch you do <laughs> –
0: Hey, want my Philly cheesesteak or a po' boy sandwich? Another good example. We instantly, instantly know what that means. Right. And so this this is one of the right. things. In the U.S., when we started drinking wine here, well, when we started drinking
1: wine— We couldn't we name it after wine. the region because the region didn't exist. So right. So we couldn't say we're going to make wine the way we do in Napa because nobody knew Napa from Livermore to Sierra Foothills to Elko, Nevada. And plus, who was it that was making wine in the U.S. to start with? People from Bordeaux and Chianti and the Rhine and those places in Europe because they're the ones who knew how to make wine. They grew up in wine country, and they came here, and they started making the same style of wines right. here.
0: Right, so right the first, well, how many centuries we had been around uh, up until that cute little event. Uh, Well, actually, the other thing that wines were named up to, they were also named, certainly in California, um, as you started to get into the late 1800s, they were also named after the wineries. So they were just, it was just, you know, uh, 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 Charles Krug. It was Charles Krug, Red Wine, you know, Red and, right. um, and uh, but then our little friend
1: Prohibition popped its ugly head up. Yes, and we had to stop stop doing the show for fourteen years. That was rough on us. I don't know, you
0: know, we we, we that digging ditches I, was not there's earn a, a Movement
1: to put Prohibition back <laughs> in just place, to get rid of us just for this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, who can and who can blame them? <laughs> who can blame them? <laughs> so
0: here comes nineteen thirty three, and right. we've got the uh, the the entire American. Uh, alcohol world
1: about to reboot. Right. For the wine world, it was actually about to really start. Well, because in those days, remember that before Prohibition, people were making all kinds of different wines and doing quite well. I mean, winning gold medals at Paris exhibitions and all the rest. Then in Prohibition, you were only allowed to make wine for two reasons, religious ceremonies and medicinal purposes. And those two do not require that you age the wine for sixteen months in imported French oak barrels and have delicate nuances of cassis and polished barley. <laughs> I mean, you're just looking for a simple little bottle, of glass of red wine that you can slug down at mass, or you can drink before dinner to get your uh, to get your way through the meal.
0: Right, and technology has something to do with it too. Pre-prohibition, remember, prohibition was nineteen late the nineteen teens, nineteen nineteen, and and so this was uh, tech technology was such that most wine was sold in giant barrels right. it was brought as as folks tell us brought to you know a, a big pub in san francisco or new york or wherever in a giant barrel and and you know sold out of the barrel of the tap so you're not we're not talking about these fine fine wines but come 1933 a couple things have happened so one you've got some of these folks that made wine that were Selling it, bootlegging it—that of course never admitted to it—but also that were that
1: or ha- were selling it to the church,
0: selling it to the church. But sure. had these sort of giant stores of what could be generously described as rotgut.
1: <laughs> as as one
0: of our friends says, that's, there were lakes of rotgut gut. Out that there. you know,
1: that's never a wine name that I've seen on a label. <laughs> rot gut.
0: That, that should be my name, Rick's Rot gut.
1: So rot red. Rot got red. I kind of from think it- Rick and Paul. Oh. So, so here we are,
0: 1933, and uh, and there were a handful of of fine winemakers and only a handful of fine winemakers and many of them in California practically right. almost only in California among them were our friends of Wente down in Livermore and right. remember in 1933 that's one of the centers of wine in California oh yeah way
1: bigger than way bigger than Napa right actually.
0: right right yeah. and those the the Wente brothers who are you know have we've talked about them in the past have had this sort of legacy of innovation There, the Wente clone is responsible for about 8% of the Chardonnay in California yeah. but they're thinking we need to do something to differentiate for that is only going to be a small group of people but the people who buy what is considered fine wine they want to drink European style wine
1: what can we put on our label that will tell people that this is not your grandmother's Buick or your grandmother's uh, Chablis (laughs) Chablis Was Buick around then? Burgundy. I believe they were. How do you drink so a is Buick?
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can't get a Buick in a bottle. Although um, Buick in a bottle is not a bad name for a wine either. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the white version of <laughs> Rot Gut Red. <laughs> Bu- there we go. That's okay. the
0: new Cushman and Wagner wine company. Is, okay. Is, so
1: so getting back to our point here, <laughs> so, you've got you've got the traditional things that are being sold in California at that point, which are Burgundy, Chablis, Sauternes. Uh, champagne. Chianti, Rhine wine all generic terms for wines they used to make in Europe. And and not even necessarily those grapes. And, and in fact, the difference between Chianti and Burgundy in the bottle was quite often it was exactly the same oh, wine. Yeah, they just yeah, put they two, just two put different, different labels bottles, on yeah, it. Yeah. So from there, some of these wineries said, we want to tell people that we're doing something different. If we put Burgundy on it, they'll assume it's just like everything else. So let's put something on that will make them think.
0: And what they came up with for the Wente brothers was Sauvignon Blanc. It was the Mm -hmm. first variety-labeled wine in California— of any of any stature, and it was it was their 1933, which is actually 1932 grapes, but it's the uh, or came out in 1933 is 1932 vintage. Hmm. It came out right after Prohibition, and lots of you know they, everybody could see that Prohibition was about to end, so everybody's ready to go. Right, you know, there's folks like the Louis right. Martini Winery, which started right after that. They had, yeah. took over an old winery, and they were yeah, just yeah. loaded up and ready to go. Christian Brothers, Christian too. Brothers, another <laughs> one, right? Um, and so, in any case, yep. uh, and, and and it connected. It connected with the folks that were looking for what w- would be described as fine wine. Well,
1: and here's a really interesting story about that. They were actually getting their grapes and and making wine from a couple of growers in Livermore who had brought over the original grape clones from Chateau de Cam. Right, which is the... The greatest white wine yes. in Bordeaux. Paul's choking up here. Uh, <clears throat> just the notion, the notion of these great grapes. Yeah, and, and so they were getting these grapes from Chateau de Chem, and they wanted to give people some idea that it wasn't like... Chateau de Chem, by the way, is a Sauterne, and a bunch of people in California are making Sauternes, and they wanted to say, no, no, it's not that crud you've been buying this is really fine stuff made from the same grapes as chateau de chem let's call it by the grape name so that you're clear it's not just some blend of stuff right and and it and it worked and the and, and people got it and it also fits
0: it also fits the the sort of American psyche so much more because now one it, it was clear we're looking for clarity. You know, as as Americans are starting to learn about wine, it's really simple. Put the name right. of the grape on there, right? You know, and of course, as although Sauvignon Blanc could easily be a hundred percent Sauvignon Blanc, uh, you know, for anybody who knows, varietals don't necessarily have to be. They have to be seventy-five percent, seventy-five percent, and just and as uh, you, you hear the term. By the way, we get questions on this. The term varietal versus variety. It's a grape variety. A Sauvignon Blanc is a variety of grape. When a wine right. is made from the grape, it becomes a varietal. You don't really need to know that information. That's right. the kind and of this, wine snob and this stuff. This show that,
1: is a variety show, not a varietal show. Yes, I we are, are the the varietal is is a couple of idiots. Um,
0: <laughs> and in any case, so that and it, that became
1: such a, a huge piece of. Um, how we think about wine. How Californians distinguished between Jug wine, which was named after the regions in Europe, and fine wine, which is named after the grape. And That's w- basically how it broke out. And Boy, it, did we take a long time. Yeah, to tell it that also, story. but it
0: also, it also <laughs> fit into something else. It fit into sort of the California psyche, in particular, which is mm. that by having the grape name, not the required grapes, that it allowed for experimentation. You could be Sauvignon Blanc with or without oak. It could be, could be Chardonnay with buttery or non-buttery flavors. It could be Cabernet with Merlot in it or, or something else. And so, mm-hmm, you know that. That people could try things without having to fit by the rules because those brand names that were the European names that people knew right. had some restrictions. So that—it right. it fit how we are. Speaking of experimentation, if you're listening to us and wondering, are we always this clear—dear uh, God—in um, any case— uh, <laughs> We hope we answered some of that question for Claudia. We're going to talk about where it's going a bit later in the show, but this is for the moment, Bottle Talk, still actually, Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we will take some questions. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to get some questions from our listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes as well, and you can subscribe for free. So if you want to know what, uh, you know, what, what it is that qualifies us to be giving you history lessons— Well, clearly from the last segment, it's clarity. Yes. I was going to say, if you find out, let me know. But yeah, it's <laughs> just yeah. yes, yes, we are we we can as we're we're about to demonstrate our clarity. <laughs> I will. And Paul has been a clearly respected industry pro for lots of years. Well, until he started answering questions here, he also answers questions on allexperts.com dot com and he teaches too at Napa Valley College, at the Coloring Institute of America, all
1: kinds of places around the world too. And Rick is the crystal clear commentator (laughs) on wine at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento, New York Times bestselling author, and consults with wineries and restaurants on clarity and all things clear. (laughs) Yes.
0: That's the truth. Nobody would believe it. I teach restaurants how to speak clearly about wine. (laughs) All right. Our first question comes from Jason in Denver. Mm -hmm. He says, I read that food always tastes worse on airplanes, though I fly. Airline name removed so we won't get sued, and I think it would be crappy on the ground, too. (laughs) All right. (laughs) That's that's funny, Jason. But what about wine on planes? Is it different on planes, and if so, why? It is different. It is different. It is absolutely different on
1: planes, and here's why. Remember that most of what you taste is smell. Because you can only taste five.
0: Continue our clarity campaign. What are you saying is, <laughs> smell is the vast majority of how things come taste. to you as taste. Eighty-five well, percent of
1: you taste five taste things, things, sweet, right. salty, sour, bitter, and umami. Yes. And then on top of that, all these delicate nuances of minerality that we keep yes. making fun of—those are actually smells. They're not actually. And your flavors. brain translates that in when you when you eat something. That's right. So what the problem is, is in order to smell something, the molecules in the air have to carry that to your nose. Here's the problem. In an airplane, the cabin's set at 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 feet, pressurized that way, and there's less air, which means the aromas have less. If you're thinking about your nose as a computer, you've just gone from a DSL connection back to a dial-up modem, and no wonder the data isn't getting through as quickly.
0: And it's... Completely dry, too. So that's very dry. So it's working even even slower. So yeah. n- now you're at a yeah. um, you're at some guy yelling across the room <laughs> in terms of <laughs> translating information. Telephone. So what does that do to wine? You know, we've uh I've talked oh, I've done some stories this over the years. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Andrea M Robinson, yeah. I think she was the first American woman Master Sommelier, but she consults not the
1: first, but one of them. One of them, mm-hmm. yeah. In case, she, was oh, first. But, just so that in, in any case, she consults with clear. airlines,
0: and and she says she has to really carefully choose her wines. She needs to choose one wines with big flavors, yep. but but they can't just be simple because then she's not doing her job of bringing, you know, she's right. especially if she's in the, the, the right. first-class cabins and that sort of thing. Yep. And so it's a really difficult thing. The wines have to have large stature in a lot of cases without being
1: one note. Well, you see the same thing, and was it Jason originally mentioned the food? Of course, Jason lives in Denver. Right. So Jason lives Good a example. mile up in the air anyway. But, so you might be right. Those wines actually probably do taste bad on the ground. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing that I think Jason is unaware of is that most of the airlines spend a ton of time figuring out how to get more flavor into the food. In the food because they have the same problem. Yeah, um, I'm
0: not so sure they succeed. They don't
1: succeed very often. My <laughs> wife and I are backpackers, and we are frequently eating things and cooking things up at 10,000 feet or more, and you know what? They don't taste as good as in our kitchen in Napa. So uh, I, it's, it's all related to this altitude thing. And. It helps if you add extra salt. It helps if you add extra seasoning, extra concentration. But even so, it's never going to taste as good at 8,000 feet as it tastes on the ground. Yeah,
0: so if there's any any answer uh, besides yes, Jason, is if you are flying and you want a glass of wine, Get the Zinfandel. It'll well, be no, simple. You know, what it'll I, be I would easy. recommend Jason do is or that get, if he's get he, a beer,
1: he should go into first class. Oh yeah. Well yeah. You know but sort of get just the, go get up the... and, and say you're really sorry. You but you actually take wine pretty seriously, and you really don't want to drink what they're serving in economy. Yes. Could you just have a glass of the stuff from the first class and, cabin? And, and when the air marshal your... arrests and, and... you and straps <laughs> you to the back of the plane, <laughs> you know, you're fine.
0: yeah. But the other thing is is probably don't don't worry so much about the wine that you're drinking. You
1: can also just get the cheap stuff because that's, that's gonna, right. It's not gonna. As yeah, a flight attendant deal. said to the guy next to me on my most recent flight, he said, when he, the guy ordered a gin and tonic and the flight attendant said, so is this to drink or do you want to sleep?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good question. All right. Our second question comes from uh, Jennifer Clemens in Sacramento. She hmm. says, I was in a bar where the beer was pretty foamy or it was flat and the bartender said they were having trouble with their taps and their kegs. Mm-hmm. And they also have wine on tap. And I was wondering, can they have trouble with a wine keg and mess it up like with beer? yes and no yes and no but actually one of the things so this is actually another thing that i do once again hard to believe that I, you know i consult with restaurants on their wine lists and i'm a big fan of of wine on tap for lots of reasons mm-hmm. and not the least of which is that it stays fresh it stays fresh but one of the things they need to continually do just like with beer is to clean their lines
1: mm-hmm. so if
0: they don't clean their lines regularly what you end up getting is you end up you get you know in essence the pressure there's a little bit of pressure getting the wine into the tap as well you know, and But you're, you're getting – you could be picking up other kinds of things from that
1: as well. So there are three parts of this. First of all, you've got the wine in a keg that's just like beer in a keg. It's, but the difference is wine is Except not – Except it's be- wine. Wine is not carbonated. Beer is carbonated. So when you push a non-carbonated beverage through those lines you're talking about, it's not the same as pushing a carbonated beverage. If you don't get the pressure right with a beer keg – As Jennifer points out, you get all the foam or it doesn't work right. Right. So it doesn't destroy the wine. Don't quite have the same problem with wine. Still, you are using pressure to push the wine through the lines. And if you leave wine in one of those lines for a couple of days because you're closed for a couple of days and then you come in and start pouring the wine, the wine that's been in the line didn't stay fresh. The stuff in the keg is still fresh. That's what you're talking about is the stuff in the line. If you're closed for Monday and Tuesday, by the time you start pushing wine through there, what's left in the line is going to taste pretty crummy. So um, does it mess it up like beer? No. Can it mess it up a little bit? Yeah. Is wine in a keg a good way to serve wine in a restaurant? I think so.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the Jennifer, the, the real simple answer is um, you probably have more to worry about sometimes, especially with like red wine by the glass than you do with wines on tap. Because
1: the wine in the bottle can go badly yeah, quicker it's, than it's the wine often, in the and you, we,
0: you know, even in, in not by the glass, but you often see some restaurants where, you know, especially the more casual places where the wine's just, you know, standing there you know, right. on a counter behind the bar. Right. And it's, it's not particularly historically You know what's always a well. good
1: trick is ask to, if you're ordering wine by the glass like that, it's always a good idea to say, can I see the bottle? If they bring you the bottle and, and, the, warm. and the bottle doesn't have a date on Ooh, it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, by the glass, right, because every good restaurant rates it when they open it. Theoretically, yeah. you're supposed to write the na- date on the bottle when you open it so that you're not pouring old wine. It's... If you ask for wine by the glass, could I see the bottle, and they bring you the bottle and it doesn't have a date on it, yeah. Not the other thing sign. is, is
0: if, if it feels warm to you, that's not a good sign either. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, yeah. use your use your senses in every way you can.
1: So what else we got in the mailbag? We
0: got we got one more. This is from Ashley in San Francisco. This is a good question. Uh, I was in a Greek restaurant and tried something called restina.
1: What was it? It was horrible. Okay. It's (laughs) retsina. Retzina. Right, right, right. And the name comes from, actually, resin. And here's the story. Pine resin. Which is in the good old days of the ancient world. They had two problems. One of them was their ceramics weren't particularly waterproof, nor were their goat skins. And the second thing was wine oxidized pretty quickly. So one of the things they used to combat that problem was pitch from pine trees. Yes, the same pitch you get when you sit on a log up in the mountains now is in your wine. It worked in the ancient world, but the problem was, of course, it gave that resonated flavor to the wine. And almost all the ancient, the wines of the ancient world had that flavor. So on the one hand, Ashley, you were tasting a wine very similar to wines that were made 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, when... When the wine wasn't very good. <laughs> that's right. When when Brad Pitt was fighting in Troy, he was probably drinking wine that tasted just like Retzina. Yeah. Now... Today it's more of a historical curiosity. It is well, difficult to convince Americans to drink it because it tastes a little bit like turpentine. But
0: poor Greece, because uh, you know, it, it was the wine—the one wine that people sort of know, uh, or they, if they knew anything about Greek wines, they go to Greece, they ask for retsina, and it's and it's
1: awful, and they think Greek wines are terrible. Right, because retsina is unique.
0: Right, and it's—it's just—it is—it is almost as a curiosity. It yeah. is, um, but, but they do make great wines in they Greece. They make some. Terrific wines in Greece, and so yeah. it's kind of one of those things that do, do not judge uh, a Greek by its retsina or That's something. Right. There are so many yeah. other good yeah. wines you can drink from. Yeah, Greece. you know, one of the other things I think is is kind of uh, it brings up sort of the point that. Um, you know, this the, we we have talked about natural wines in the past, and you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. some of the crazies in the natural wine music m- movement. Not all of them are, but some of the crazies want people to make wines exactly the way they made wines, you know, forever. So Yum. what they're basically saying is, you know, don't use steel containers. Go
1: go back and read what Louis Pasteur said, and then forget everything. <laughs>
0: forget everything, yeah, and put pitch on yep. the
1: uh, in your barrels. And so here's a little historic note. Do we have time for a quick historic? Got just note? about a minute. Which is is that in the Roman era? And remember, Rome, the capital, was was uh, in in the heart of Italy, which was the greatest wine region of the ancient world. The Romans said the greatest wines in the ancient world came from the island of Santorini, which was a Greek.
0: Yeah, and and the um... until
1: it exploded with a huge volcanic eruption. <laughs>
0: it's always something with those volcanoes isn't it <laughs> um well okay we have uh we got uh, a couple of quick things too before we go we're going we normally would be getting to our uh, w- w- crazy badly horrible wine writing. we will do that in the second half of the show we have a couple more seconds here so i want to just actually go back to um the greek thing too because i think that um you know it's one of the it's one of the wines that's sort of emerging, and you know, you see these stories all the time. And, yes, and people
1: I, are getting excited about Greek wines, but the problem the Greeks have is that the easiest wine to pronounce of all of the wines made in is Greece is No, it's Retsina. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yes. And unfortunately, a, yeah, Xenomabra and Assyrtiko and, yeah. and all of those, yes. and the people at home who are listening to this are saying, I don't even know how to start those, let alone yes. finish them. So,
0: so go to the Greek restaurant, don't get the Retsina and ask for something in Greek.
1: Particularly Here, fresh, lively white Wines. You're
0: listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We will be right back. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. That lovely, delicate music is fair warning. It is time. It is time for our really horrible wine writing. We've got some good examples here today. (laughs) Yes, we do. Which is never really hard to find good examples, but we have some particularly good ones. Paul, what'd you bring?
1: Well, Rick, I got one here. I got one for you and one for me. Day one and day two. I'll read one. You read two. Okay. And what we'll do is this is a website that wants to sell us Pinot Noir. Okay? And, um... Here's why you can't trust a thing these people say. Let me read the first one. You read the second one, and then let's talk about how crazy they really are. Day one. This wine blends top Pinot Noir regions together for a richer, more complex style than what you could achieve by sourcing from one small area. Okay, I see where they're going. Okay. The wine shows beautiful balance with vibrant acidity and supple tannins while the fruit character stands out as bright and distinctive, like oh. us. All right. That, well, I like to think so. We're okay. sourced for many so areas. what does day two say, right?
0: His wines are site-specific, and in this cool climate—this this is the same winer, winery, right, we're talking yeah. about Yeah. Right. So his wines are site-specific, and in this cool climate, he coaxes richness and complexity from his single vineyard pinot in ways he could not get from different regions. <laughs> <laughs> the wine has a vibrant acidity—that sounds familiar—and intense structure and subtle tannins, making the bright fruit stand out. <laughs> so in one wow. place,
1: he gets a richer, more complex style than you could achieve by surfing from one small region. And in the other one, he coaxes richness and complexity in from his single vineyard in ways that he couldn't from the different regions. Uh, Either way you go, yeah. he's better.
0: I think I I don't trust these people. This man sounds like a magician. Yeah, he must be a magician. That is, you know, that that's that's such a good one too because um, that subject <laughs> is is always one for debate. But even you know the. the uh, they can make wine at, into whatever they'd like it to make out. If they yes. pick fruit from lots of places, they can make it one note or or beautifully complex. Yes. Yes. You know, if they're making wine from one vineyard, there's still different parts of vineyards. Sure. You, know, you this... age
1: it in different kinds of barrels. There's lots of things you can do. Yes. But to me, the fun part is one winery is yes. trying to sell the same wine using two completely different routes yes. rationales to get to the I guess he's figured if you don't you didn't... If you don't if get them one way, you'll you, get them the other.
0: Yeah. And the third one, they just have a buy this one. Buy this one now. Yeah, yeah buy this one now. All right. Well, mine is... Is, uh, this is a, actually a fun one. This is from a uh, a writer. I, I brought this in. That he a is, real writer? A real writer, yeah. He is actually wow. a sports writer. As a writer named Rod McKenzie, and he writes for The Mail and Guardian, and that's actually a, a South African-based,
1: pan-African online newspaper. It used to be a wow. big newspaper, but now yeah. they're mostly online. And And just can I interrupt for a second? Isn't it interesting the number of sports writers who eventually end up writing about wine? I mean, some of the most important wine writers in California started as sports
0: writers. And, you know, many of them are the best, too, because they actually know how to write, if nothing else. Yes. But here's his sense. He's writing—actually, he's writing about rugby descriptions. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so what he says. Okay. Have you noticed the rugby critics' poetic descriptions of beefy rugby stars? oh, those scholarly sports writers and their strained attempts to create an elegant portrait of yet, and then he goes into these. Another yes, another... Testosterone-laden powerhouse from, say, New Zealand, or a double-door fridge with whirling legs and arms from Samoa, or a brick house from South Africa. He says the pileup of adjectives and blurs begin to verbs begin to blur. They begin to look a lot like the extravagant, absurd descriptions you find of many wines. I like the double-door fridge with whirling oh, I know. legs and arms. <laughs> well, People I could... have
1: said that about me yes, many times. They, yes, they've... <laughs> that's great. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm. Okay, so does, he they, has, they, of course, some examples.
0: They've called me the double-door playmate. Cooler, actually, the <laughs> little bitty guy with legs that didn't hardly move. Um, and so, here's a typical example of what I mean with the keywords missing a big, full bodied blank, boldly assertive on and off the blank. Is this a great wine or a great rugby player? <laughs> you can, Excellent. You can put the spaces of the word flank and field or replace them with red wine and palate. I mean, you guys, look at this ev- evocation of wine. This is a great one. The aromatics offer incredible power and aromas of beef blood, spice figs, sweet black currants, kirsch, smoked game, lavender, dried flowers, and sweaty but attractive saddle leather-like notes. (laughs) Full bodied and massively endowed, it possesses the balance to age for 30 years. As he says, 30 years indeed, that's about the same age as a well-matured rugby player in his prime. That's funny.
1: I'm I'm really not interested in how endowed the rugby player yes, is. That's yes, yes. Well, a little I mean, too much information maybe, at that Maybe point. he
0: means muscular. But, but uh,
1: um, that's absolutely brilliant. We should send Rod McKenzie a, an invitation to come on the show sometime <laughs> yeah, and talk about his rugby players. Yeah. I wonder if any of them are polished barley. <laughs> I'm sure that they are. I will say
0: this about his... His uh, descriptions of the rugby players, yeah. Um, I, at least they're sort of metaphors that make some sense when they're talking about the sports guys. The sports, the sports a Double door
1: fridge with whirling arms and legs. Yeah. That's an image. That's a good By image. God. Yeah. yeah, you can that's see that is. guy you playing know. just about yeah. a lot of sports. And
0: that's kind of you know we talk about that too, and we talk about <laughs> wine writing is that we want we want somebody to describe the wine in a way that we'll see it right. You know, and a double door fridge with whirling legs is probably not going to be a wine I'm going to buy. (laughs) No, but boy, it it does evoke. That's a pretty good piece of writing
1: right there. I like that. All right. Well, thank you, Rod. Thank you, Rod.
0: Okay, so I'm going to go back to uh, Claudia Anzalilo is from New York and Snoot. Her question about whether regional blends or blends in general might Mm -hmm. replace the names of grapes as a major way of talking about wine in America. Okay, and we we pretty much uh, think not. Right. But, which is not to say that red blends aren't a hugely important part of the market these days.
1: Right. But what people are doing is instead of using some sort of widely accepted name like Meritage, and it is pronounced Meritage like heritage, not Meritage. Even though it looks like we're supposed to be all Frenchy about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, wineries are producing their own proprietary blends and using their own names. So you have, and there everything are certainly names out there that people know. The Prisoner, right. Phelps Insignia,
0: Conundrum is one lots that people of know. Good examples. Yeah, Mayomi, which is a wine brand, is
1: you know is right. actually
0: kind of a bit of a blend of different regions, and people sort of know it as its yep.
1: brand rather yep. than what the wine is. So in fact, we are moving that direction a little bit, but it's brand by brand rather than regional blends or schematic blends based on some combination of grapes. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit like, you know, when you... Let's, let's go one level deeper in Europe. In Bordeaux, Bordeaux is a blend of five grapes, which exactly what percentages of those five grapes are in, say, Chateau Margaux? Well, that's determined by Chateau Margot. And so when you buy Chateau Margot, you're basically buying a red blend with those exact elements. The same as Phelps insignia the right. f- same as conundrum they make that wine to to capture their style and what they're trying to create and in, in Bordeaux what their property does best and it's very it's it's very much like a brand so ironically in Europe everything's done by region but then when you break it down it's kind of by brand here it's by brand and then when you break it down it's kind of into these individual brand names
0: yeah and I think that one of the things for the vast majority of the American market, too, is, um, and we were we we talk about this a lot that that American wine buyers are generally not as sophisticated about it or as educated about wines. And so for them, grape names is such a good handle. It's just such a good thing as you learn about wines. We had a question last week, when someone was asking about, why certain varieties aren't weren't made into more wines right. and right. and you know and and because we they don't think why aren't are people making more x blends or y right. blends you know and right. um and so i just think in in a way you know the nature of who we are i mean like markets define themselves and and the that ship has sailed the the horses out of the barn. I'm, I'm running out of really bad metaphors. Boy, there's yeah, some metaphors. Yeah. I'm gonna
1: Okay, so I'm gonna uh, that, 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 an interesting point and I'm gonna disagree with you almost completely and hundred oh, percent <laughs> because I believe you started with Oh, you calling calling wrong. wrong? I'm you you wrong because a believe you a with a false assumption. And oh, your assumption that's how I is always work. <laughs> your assumption is that American consumers are less knowledgeable about wine than their European counterparts. And my experience is that the average American is much more willing to taste wines from around the world. And oh yeah, 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 Much more yeah. willing to experience a much broader spectrum of wine than the average Frenchman, Italian, Spaniard, who traditionally buys basically the wines from his region. Let period. me
0: let me restate my false assumption. Okay, um, which is that Americans are more insecure about their uh, knowledge of wine and and are content or less likely and to to reach for something to accept something so entirely new when they're still learning the system that they're learning. Whereas I think the Europeans that you talk about are very happy to drink their village wine, their local wine, that sort of thing.
1: Right. So I actually think that the Americans are, have, a, had a, have a, a more open mind. Oh, yeah. They have more experience with a broader range of wines. And that, it's not that they are less secure. It's that they are faced with an ocean if you go to a wine shop in Rioja, you will not find wines from anywhere but Rioja. Yeah, this is true, too. So mm-hmm. Calif- the, the American consumer walks into a wine shop and sees 1,000 or 3,000 different labels. That, you never see that in Europe. Well, this
0: goes back to my ship has sailed from the barn. being So they, so they, go, <laughs> they, they, they go to this giant wine shop with the all horse- of these wines, and the, the, their, their most reliable cue is the grape name. Right. And and they're so far down that road that right. I, I just don't think it I don't think it comes back even though they might understand
1: particular blends or particular places. So you're saying that the ship couldn't shouldn't cry I, over spilt milk. I think
0: yes. I think the ship has <laughs> spilled its milk and it is And there's no
1: is, getting that ship back in and the barn.
0: speaking of sinking ships, that would be us.
1: So I'm going to change
0: gears. Anyway, Claudia, that's a, those are really good questions, but I I Lordy, I don't think we answered it. No, either. I
1: think we sort of did, which we sort is of that did. The, the, the American consumer has adopted this. They use it. Individual companies are developing proprietary names for their blends, but it's still American wine is marketed by blend and varietal, by, excuse me, by brand and varietal. And European wines are, are marketed by region, and we don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: And, and we are marketed by our own
1: uh, we are ridiculousness. Marked, we are marked by symbols of yes. significant incompetence. There
0: you go. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and, <laughs> and competent though we may be, we are going back to our mailbag. And by the way, if you'd like cool. to ask us a question, you can do that. Just go to rickandpaulwine.com. We sometimes will take a, a, a question and and spend half the show mangling it, as we have just done for pork <laughs> yes, body. It is. Metaphorically but, speaking. Meta, metaphorically speaking, yes. <laughs> well, our next question that we will mangle, it comes from Emily in St. Helena. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of friends studying for their sommelier test. You guys can be critical about some of those guys, and a few of my friends really can be idiots sometimes. So, what do they learn, and do they get worse or better if they pass? Wow, what a great question! <laughs> what a great question. So, Saint Helena,
1: Emily lives in the heart She's of a wine, wine country. She's in wine country. She's got some that's, serious wine guys that's and Napa boys and girls around right her. There.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yep. So uh, here's what you know, Paul and I had talked about this often, and we're going to disagree a little bit. Um, although fundamentally, a change. yeah, but fundamentally, we, we agree on the same thing: is that there's. I think that if they pass enough of these tests, to they get to the point where they're like at a master sommelier you know, level, they're going to be taught not to be jerky about it. They're going to be taught not to talk about it the way they talk about their tests. No
1: question. In yeah. fact, if you do. If you if you are taking the master psalm test and there is a service component of that, right. and you are waiting on a table, and you are a jerk to that table in any way, even to the level of correcting someone's pronunciation of a wine that they have mispronounced, you don't pass the test. Uh, yes, right, right, right. So, so you're here, trained right out of that.
0: But here is what what we see. And when we do our horrible wine writing, we often see echoes of the tests and the study because there's a, there's a form to answering the questions on the test. You have, you have five things that you look at just on the site of wine alone, and it goes on. And, mm. and, they sort of, and they sort of recite them when they're taking the test as a way to differentiate it. So if you listen to somebody practice, they'll say, the wine is clear the wine is bright you know they i mean they those right. that that's the wine right. is the wine is the wine is and um and then they say on the nose or on the palate and on the nose on the palate i know. usually right.
1: don't put wine on my uh, nose yes
0: oh i sometimes put a little drop cuz my nose sticks way into there <laughs> but in any case so but the problem sometimes is, and often is, is that – and I know this when I do restaurant trainings – is that the folks that I have sometimes the hardest time teaching to speak to their customers – Are the ones who know the most. the ones, Yeah, and the ones who have taken a couple of these tests because yep. they break it down in ways that apply to the test to help you understand the wine. What right. they don't do is then take the next step and put it back together
1: in a way that then helps their customers. Sure. And, and so what I see is I congratulate these people for their enthusiasm they're really excited about this stuff they really love to it's so exciting it's it's like when you first really discover batting statistics in baseball and you suddenly want to tell her what you have to understand is most of the people in the restaurant aren't that excited about it. And you need to talk to them about something that matters to them, not that matters to you. And that's yeah, they, her, they don't really
0: care about the secondary color. That's right.
1: Or the
0: tears, not the legs. The tears are medium plus, which is one way to describe the size <laughs> of the tears. That's not going to sell a glass of wine. right?
1: And so to me, I, I admire the enthusiasm. But if they can't learn to moderate that enthusiasm for the process they're going through, with some rationale of, gosh, I'm actually trying to talk to real people about something they're going to put in their mouths, they will ultimately not be successful. They may pass a few of the exams. They may get some right answers. But ultimately, in terms of being a good sommelier, they will not be successful.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You know, I have a handful of friends in the Sacramento region um, that and are— You have a
1: handful of friends, <coughs> period,
0: yes. Rick. that's it. And most of them are <laughs> in the Sacramento region. A handful of friends that have been studying together—a study group that works together And and—, right. um, and and it's what's really interesting in this group is that there is a range. In fact, one of them was on your panel at um, at uh, with the State Fair. Oh, okay. Um, uh-huh. she, uh, she's a Psalm, one of the psalms in That's town. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and yes. and she's a terrific. And, nice she's, and she's terrific in selling wine. She speaks yes. to the customer exactly the right level. At, and she's really good at reading what that level is. Right. And one there's another person in the group, and I don't want to make fun of this guy too much, but he's he's so into the 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 you know, the, the insider talk, you right. know, and he right. loves one and he's a good right. guy, but he right. just he can't describe one. It's because... a little bit,
1: you know, it's a little it's a little bit like talking about an iPhone with a a an electrical engineer who's into the technical aspects of how the insides of an iPhone work and people like the iPhone because you don't need to know that stuff, yeah. I, and yet I, he can't stop talking about.
0: I, I just want somebody to tell me how to get Siri to stop making fun of me.
1: <laughs> Good I, luck on that one. Rick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. This next one comes from Andrew Impasserable. I don't, Emily. I hope what uh, I hope that was some kind of an answer. They um, they eventually they do eventually learn to treat their
1: if, customers if they pass if, if, if they, if they want to pass. Yeah. they have to learn to treat their customers as real people. Yes.
0: All right. This is from Andrew Impasserable. My girlfriend and I are really getting into wine, and we usually drink a bottle, or maybe more, with a good dinner, but sometimes I'm pretty hungover the next morning, and sometimes I'm not, and sometimes she's hungover, and sometimes she isn't, and it's not always the same night for both of us. What's going on? Lots of things.
1: Yeah, but I—I I mean, if you don't want a hangover, there are three simple steps to take.
0: Well, the first one is don't drink a lot of wine. But I'm don't not going to suggest so much that. Wine. I'm not going to suggest that. Second I think there one are a is
1: others. drink a glass of at right. least a glass of water for every glass of wine you drink. And the third one is never drink on an empty stomach. Yeah. Always make sure that there's food first and then wine.
0: So there's there's a lot of things that cause hangovers, um, and it is in. It, they talk about it in one way as sort of a mildly like would be like a allergic or withdrawal withdrawal reaction. But what is often happening is that you're dehydrated and your body is recovering right. and it's right. sucking, it's taking water out from
1: every place, including right. your brain. Liter- and but literally, the cells of your body are dehydrating right. because the alcohol actually yeah right. Makes so that it's re-
0: so you're recovering. And one thing that actually sometimes so that can lead to even more worse hangovers is, is is sugar in wines. Mm. or you know so sweeter wines or really even like a big dessert so sometimes that could do it too because sugar is another thing that actually sucks a little bit of the so would you recommend
1: that instead of drinking a glass of water with every glass of wine you'd recommend Gatorade yeah. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> you probably want to get the unflavored Gatorade. <laughs> well, boy, put some the, put good. some of
0: those electrolytes back in you. <laughs> yes. A Little sodium there. That'll do it. Yeah. Cool. I mean, it, yeah. it's
1: actually. I'm I'm being facetious, but that's actually what you need to do to solve the problem.
0: Yeah. So so so. But one thing, the hydration is huge. Hydration and, is huge. And and one way to think about that is if you guys are going out to dinner, or you're having a dinner in, or you're going to a party, you know. Drink some water during that day, too. First, yeah. Yeah, yeah and get, yeah. Your, get yourself yeah. hydrated. And then the second piece of that is, as Paul was saying, because of the food in your stomach, it's it, it actually it slows the dehydration process. Mm-hmm. It slows mm-hmm. your body's absorption. And so, you know, it is uh, – plus, you can drink more wine that way because you get less drunk. So, there's that. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So, that's, that's yep. hopefully – all right. Good. We have time for – I think for, we answered that question. I think we – Right this, uh, Matt, can you mark this on the uh, computer? This is Matt Pacini, our <laughs> engineer. Paul and Rick maybe actually, actually answered a question. All right. This one's from uh, Elena in Portland. How am I supposed to keep track of vintages? Do they really matter? I try to pay attention, but I can barely remember the name of the wine I liked last weekend. That's a good question.
1: Yeah, it is. And I'm uh, going to say that I know all about vintages, and I don't keep track of them I don't very keep track of them. Um, there's,
0: yeah, there's a couple that stand out, but, uh, you know, there's— and you know, you, you, this always, especially you know, in the fall, you know, to the, up until through this time of year, you know, was and is that we um, we we're hearing this is going to be a great year. Two thousand fifteen is going to be a really good year. Two thousand sixteen yes. is going to be a really good year, even yeah. though it hasn't even started yet. That's it's right. always going to be a really good say, year. Yes. yes. But um, you know.
1: So we talked about this a little, in a, in a, in a, I think, in a previous show about the fact that the technology today is so good, both in the vineyard right. and in the winery, that the variations between a good vintage and a great vintage are now, let's say, 10%, maybe 15%. They're not the way they were 50 years ago, where there could be a 50% qualitative difference between a bad year and a good year, yeah. or even higher. So the vintages matter a lot less now. And actually, I pay attention to vintages only really in one case, which is that when I'm drinking a white wine, um, and it's you don't to want be it too old. One, if it's a fresh, lively style of white wine, I don't want as as um, he said, "In the father of, was it the jerk? Don't bring me any of those old wines. I want something young and fresh." Yes. Well, I do want young and fresh white wines. Yeah.
0: The other, the other time to pay attention to vintages, and this is not having uh, to do with whether it's the wine you choose, but when you've chosen a wine, say at a restaurant, yep. make sure that it's the same vintage, because often that, then they could be trying to get, especially to try to get rid of something, if it's a white, but even it's something that, that is older, um, uh, you know, if it's changed, just ask them why. Yeah, it may be, maybe 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 yeah. they ran out of the 2012 and they're serving in the 2013. 13. But Perfectly some, but if you order the 2012 and they bring in the 2006,
1: right. it could be that especially if it's a white wine. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the that's time to raise really your hand bit, and yeah. say, "Gee, I'm sorry, but somebody lost seven years here."
0: But in the, the in primarily, don't worry, just don't worry about.
1: Right. It. Yeah. There's there's right.
0: other things to worry about.
1: There are so many good wines and so few bad wines on the market that the differences between vintage are the least of the things that you should worry about.
0: Right. One of the things you probably should worry about is advice you get from us.
1: How However, that's all we're going to give for now. Because our advice ranges from very good to very bad. It's a big range. That's right, and it's not by the year. (laughs) We are sipping
0: up the mailbag. We're moving on. And if you'd like to ask us a question, go to Rick and Paul Wine, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. We're listening to bottle talk with Rick and Paul, and it is time for our food and wine pairing and you know i just I just had this dish.
1: And so okay. we're, we're going to pair it. <laughs> oh, Cause, good. Cause now the you're ti- going to figure out what you should have done. Yes. I'm gonna say, Okay. Uh,
0: it's, the, it's the time of the year for this, which is roasted duck. Roasted duck. So there's two kinds. It's sort of the roasted, simple oven roasted, which I had when I thought was delicious. But
1: then yes. often
0: roasted duck comes with a glaze.
1: Right. Which means a sweet. Right. A sweet. Right, right, right. We glaze. just did a
0: sweet wine show. So yes, we can so we say did. just go over that. So let's talk about what goes with the roasted duck.
1: Plain old roasted duck. Yeah, I love a nice Pinot Noir.
0: Yeah, and you know, we went. My wife loves a lovely Chardonnay, and actually, it was a rich Chardonnay, and uh-huh. it killed. It killed. It went yeah. really well. See? Yeah. Okay. And and you know, so there's that's. Uh, but you know, I actually think roasted duck handles a lot of things. Yes, I've had uh, sort of gentle
1: Syrahs with roasted duck. Gentle Syrahs.
0: Yeah, it, you know, uh-huh. it was it was kind. It didn't beat anybody up. No, it you know, it uh, when it stood at the table, to its elders. It was. It bowed. You mm-hmm, know, it mm-hmm. was very good. No, you know, it wasn't wasn't a, it wasn't giant fruit. It wasn't the giant kind of sometimes it wasn't earthiness. A double door fridge. With it was whirling not, arms it, and with whirling legs. <laughs> <laughs> it had no whirling legs. But it was you know, but it had the syrah flavors, earthiness, right. and yeah. I, I thought it went yeah, really yeah. well. Um, and you know, I I do think um, I I think that it's a, it's we tend Pinot is perfect Pinot and duck you, right. you see duck on the menu that's right. always a place to go but. so
1: now you're talking about a glaze and I'm going to throw a real curveball at you for this one because I still like Pinot but you're I going want, back to your sports metaphors nope I want that's true I want Mayomi. Ah, because the Maomi is very rich. Yeah, and they claim it's dry, but there it's seems to be a little, be a little mm-hmm. bit of sugar in it, and yeah. I think it would go really nicely with this. And you can find it everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's a really good. That's a very, a very good kind of. That is the kind of Pinot when you said that. I was thinking a richer Pinot too. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. all right. Um, well, and and I also think that uh, roasted duck is just a perfect dish for this time of year. So we got to start
1: doing the show after
0: I know. I'm really hungry. All right. Well, well, uh, you know, luckily for us, that is it for another round of Bottle talk with Rick and Paul. <laughs> Where are we, Maybe going we can for lunch? squeeze in some lunch. Uh, once again, our engineer, er, er, uh, engineer and producer is the lovely Matt Messini. Thank you, Thanks, Matt. Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. And if you'd like to ask us a question, go to Rick and Paul Wine, all one word: Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget, we are on iTunes. If you learned anything today, we hope it's that there are lots of places called Same Minds by different names, and we say, if you're opening something good, just call us. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.